This episode of Out Alive is brought to you by Backpacker Basecamp. Go beyond the pages of Backpacker Magazine and join Backpacker Basecamp. Our new membership program connects you with exclusive benefits to get you out even more. Gear deals, video tutorials, exclusive newsletters, expert advice, members-only giveaways, and more. Join today at backpacker.com slash Basecamp. The human body is an amazing piece of engineering. Ounce for ounce, our bones are stronger than steel. One cubic inch of bone can withstand the weight of five pickup trucks before it crumbles. It makes sense that our skeleton has evolved this way. It has to protect our organs, and our muscles need to leverage something solid so they can move us around. But even though our bones are superhero strong, people still break them all the time. In fact, all of you listening to this podcast can expect to fracture two bones in your lifetime. So how is that possible? It has less to do with the force applied and more to do with the angle. Despite the inherent strength of bones, they can snap when the right force is applied at the wrong angle. A broken bone throws the entire system into disarray. Nerves scream, muscles cramp. Without an internal structure, our bodies can't function as intended. Now imagine you're trapped alone, deep in the backcountry, with a severely broken leg. How do you manage? In this episode of Out Alive, we'll discover how a young man named Greg Hine did exactly that. I made a decision to survive. When you're in that survival mode. The, the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. I've never broken a bone, ever, so I have with me someone who has. Not just once, but seven times, actually. Sitting with me is our story editor and sound designer, Matt Coderre. hey Matt, we won't ask for the rundown of every incident, but what was the worst one? Most of those seven were small things, but the worst of all of them was when I was snowboarding in a small resort in New Hampshire, and the tip of my board went under a snowdrift, and I got launched into a snow gun snapping my tibia and fibula in my right leg. The force of the fall actually resulted in me dislocating my elbow and fracturing my arm as well. And afterwards, because I was by myself, I was stuck on the mountain and ended up having to call 911 for help. How did you know your bones were broken? Could you tell right away or did you find out at an x-ray? Could you feel it snap? Did it hurt? It definitely didn't hurt right when the bones broke. Honestly, it happened so fast. It was almost like I blacked out for a few seconds. But when I finally came to a stop, I could tell that my bones were definitely not in one piece anymore. It was almost as if I had an extra knee halfway down my shin. And even then, it was really such a clean break that it didn't hurt much until the ends of the bones where they broke touched each other. And that was excruciating. 
Ouch. So the survivor of our story today actually had the same injury. He fractured his tibia and fibula as well, only in his case, it was a compound fracture, which for those of you who may not know, is when the broken bone breaks the skin and actually protrudes out of your body. Yeah, no, I've never had a compound fracture, but just adding the word compound seems like a little bit of an understatement when you can see your bones. I don't know about you, but I'd prefer to go through my whole life keeping my bones on the inside of my body. I could not agree more. Until I talked to Greg Hine, I would say I have never really been able to imagine what it's like to see your own bone on the outside, let alone survive like that for six days in the wilderness. Uh, My name is Greg Hine. I live in Fresno, California. I am a raft guide, um, long distance through hiker, part-time climber. I just love being in the outdoors. In 2014, I had gone back to Humboldt State to finish my degree. And upon completing my degree, I decided that I would like to climb to the top of Mount Goddard and to hike out the Evolution Valley on the John Muir Trail east of Florence Lake. This is supposedly one of the most beautiful sections on the JMT. On July... Third, I ended up leaving my parents' house. And then after a three-hour drive, I was able to pack my stuff up in about 15, 20 minutes and then um, head out on the south side of Florence Lake towards uh, the John Muir Trail. For this trip, I decided to go solo and um, cobbled together a half-on-trail, half-off-trail route that I thought was easily accessible. Um, And so I didn't finalize any real plans other than just a general route. Before heading out, Greg left what I would call a loose itinerary with his father and told him when to expect him home. This is Greg's dad, Doug Hine. Well, Greg, Greg left for the, for the hike on Thursday, uh, two days prior to July the 4th and was had promised that he'd be back on Monday. I, I've always asked him uh, not to go hiking alone, but th- that's, that's, that's Greg. So I just said, you know, be careful, have fun, and I'll see you on Monday. For Greg, hiking solo is not unusual, and he's not alone. 26% of backpacker readers say they enjoy hiking solo. But going it alone is a point of contention in the hiking community. The empowerment and solitude that can be found solo hiking are unmatched, but so are the risks. So on the morning of July 4th, I was headed up the South Fork of the San Joaquin River. And so where the trail left off, I ended up um, kind of continuing a circumnavigation around uh, the peak to find the northeast ridge of Mount Goddard and made it to the summit. And after taking a few pictures, um, probably spending 30, 45 minutes up there, um, I decided I needed to get off the ridge and, and kind of continue the hike. And that would have been a few, two, three miles um, of just boulder hopping um, anywhere from plate size rocks to buses and house-sized boulders. And I, you know, stood at the saddle there and looked down and 
what was before me was a rock and dirt strewn uh, chute. And then after that, it was just going to be a slide on the snow and um, self-arrest before I came to some rocks. And I thought it was a super minimal consequence shoot to to try to drop. And at this time, I had been hiking in my five fingers the whole um, morning. So I ended up just putting on my shoes. And then after two steps, I would stop, let the dirt and rock and scree that was kicked up flush out below me. And when I got to the end of the dirt, loose rock scree area, the rock about the size of your outstretched arms started sliding and I didn't see it until it was within 10, 15 feet of me. And by that time, I just hugged myself into the rock wall and hoped that the rock had enough inertia and momentum to slide over my leg and head down the mountain. And unfortunately, the rock didn't. Uh, I was knocked unconscious and when I came to, I like looked down as I'm sliding down the snowfield. I could kind of notice a few things were different. My leg was bent in an area that it shouldn't have been bent. Um, and so my foot was kind of more or less dangling um, and there was a streak of blood. I snapped the bones in my leg as I rolled over with the rock on me and compound fractured um, my tibia immediately as well as the uh, right fibula. Okay, as someone who's broken their leg before, Greg's description sounds pretty cavalier. He told us what technically happened, but what does this actually mean? So despite Greg's composure here, this injury is pretty horrific. Both of the bones in his lower leg broke, and the ends were sticking out four inches outside his skin while he was sliding down an extremely steep snowfield with rocks at the bottom. But I'm no medical expert, so let's hear from one. This is Dr. Luann Freer. My name is Luann Freer. I'm an emergency physician. I'm the medical director in Yellowstone National Park and the founder and medical director of Everest ER at Everest Base Camp in Nepal. Unfortunately, when folks fall, it's almost always a fall. Um, This isn't like a typical twisting your ankle, walking down the sidewalk kind of injury. These these kinds of fractures happen, and they they tell us as healthcare professionals that there's been a lot of force involved. Which, for Pete's sake, most folks, if they have bones sticking out of their skin, would have you know good cause to panic. The pain didn't really register because I also had to deal with knowing I needed to self-arrest. I slid about two or 300 feet vertically and my immediate plan (laughs) as I'm sliding down came to pick your foot up and as I tried to pick it up, I dropped my right um, hip, which dropped my right leg and it hit a sun cup. It really felt like some thing was trying to rip off my leg as it bounced because it caught my foot and my body is pushing towards my heel and it catches it and then as it releases it um, flops and that hurt like hell and then I tried to do it again and I dipped it again into another snow cup and my uh, lower leg bounced again like a fish on land and I immediately knew that if it probably did it again it might rip my leg off and so I dug my left heel and left palm into the snow and stopped I don't know, anywhere between 10 and 20 feet um, from the rock pile that I was sliding into. And I 
kind of immediately knew that the hike had changed um, drastically and now it was going to be something different. Let's put this into perspective. Greg has just fallen and his leg has been snapped by a boulder. He has a gaping wound. He's miles into the backcountry off trail at 11,000 feet in the Sierras. And it's only Friday. There are at least four more days until anyone expects him back home. My immediate concern was that the leg stopped bleeding because if I continued to bleed out, then... It wasn't going to be of any use concerning myself with the future if I couldn't control the immediacy of, of the leg. Medically speaking, the biggest um, risk is, is for bleeding. Uh, if you're unlucky enough to sever you know, major veins and or arteries and, and are unable to control the bleeding, that's going to be probably the most immediate risk. Um, so... You know, getting things, whether it's applying direct pressure or putting a bandage that keeps things from moving around so blood clots can form is crucial. My thoughts and ideas were if I could keep the blood flowing in the leg but not let the leg bleed out, um, I could keep my leg and was pretty confident that I was going to be rescued. And so when I got onto the rocks, I knew how to splint my leg and splinting my leg required me to use my leather belt and the trekking pole. So I untelescoped the three parts of my trekking pole. And then I cut my, my sleeping peg, my, my thermarest up so that I could wrap it around my leg as extra padding. Having read the basic outline of Aaron Ralston's story, his arm basically was tourniqueted and because of the pin in the rock. And that if I did the same thing to my leg, I was going to lose the leg. And I would, you know, if the leg started to hurt, um, go numb, turn a little purple, I backed off the the leather belt, and I ended up putting, I think, seven new holes of um, into the leather belt to add different points of pressure or constriction, depending on how the leg felt. He did a lot of stuff that sounded sounded like he'd read a survival book. To be honest, he he recognized, um, you know, his injury. He didn't panic. I loved the idea of the thermarest and the trekking poles to help stabilize, keep those bone ends from rubbing together and causing a lot more pain and bleeding. When the bones clacked, you know, and rubbed across each other when the leg wasn't supported, it was painful. I mean, you know, on, on numerous occasions did I like kind of lean back and, and not do anything for a while because it hurt so bad. And so I weighed the options of staying put versus getting clobbered by another boulder, maybe a bigger boulder. And I decided to make my plan of kind of escape or just movement. So as I dumped out my backpack uh, to, take on, to kind of take stock of what I had, I realized from the rule of three that um, three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food that I wasn't going to be able to survive out there for three weeks with the wound. So I left my food, I threw on my long johns, my fleece pants, took off my right shoe so my leg wouldn't be, you know, trying to hold up the weight of the shoe as well. From the backpack, I cut the whistle off the sternum strap. Then I took my bivy sack, left my sleeping bag, grabbed my poncho, the leatherman that I had with me, put all the all of my gear in the bivy sack and then just uh, tied it up over my left shoulder and underneath my right arm and 
At that point, I got off the rocks with all the gear that I was gonna take with me and slid down the snowfield another few hundred feet with my left hand holding my right foot. And from there, I kind of took stock of where I was. I could see Wanda Lake really clearly, and that's the JMT PCT corridor. If I sit up here, hopefully it'll be easier for them to find me. Anytime I heard a noise, I would, you know, immediately start blasting the whistle. But I, the acoustics of where I was, I believe, prevented anybody from being able to hear effectively or figure out where the noise was coming from or not even to hear it at all. Thankfully, I felt comfortable enough to fall asleep and was able to kind of catnap. And catnapping was basically what I did for the next three and a half days. At this point, Greg was hopeful that his dad would initiate a rescue when he did not return home on Monday night. Here's his dad, Doug. So Monday rolls around and no Greg. Wasn't overly alarmed or concerned because I I know with Greg's hiking habits that if he sees something that wasn't scheduled to be on his trip that in, that looks like it might be interesting, he'll go and check it out. When I woke up the second day, I started to realize that there was a funny order coming from my leg. Sounds like Greg had an infection that set in fairly quickly after his injury. And infections can kill people, not only ruin the bone and, and ruin chances for healing, but, um, you know, they can be deadly. I used the snow to clump up in my hand, and I ended up scouring um, the wound as best I could because it still had rocks and a little bit of dirt in the wound, and it had started to get infected. And my concern immediately was, well, if it goes gangrene, then I'm going to for sure lose my leg and potentially my life. Tuesday rolled around, still no Greg, didn't hear from him. Started to get go beyond, well, that's just Greg being Greg, to being a little bit peeved, but still not overly concerned. Scrubbing my leg was a pretty excruciating endeavor, and unfortunately I had to take the splints off to clean the wound effectively. And when I did that, I was holding my leg up on, you know, by my hip and my, my knee, and just kind of letting the foot lightly dangle there. But in, in doing so, um, every now and then I would kind of shift forward or move and the broken bones would crack on themselves. And that was really painful. You know, medically he got to work right away with cleaning it out to the best of his ability. People think, you know, you've got to have sterilized water or sterilized saline from the hospital. And the research tells us that um, using potable water, anything that's disinfected enough to drink is probably just fine for cleaning out a wound in the backcountry. So I ended up spending probably 20 minutes cleaning the wound and then I got the knife out and scraped some of the dried blood off the bone, kind of poked around in there trying not to hit anything but trying to get all the pus and an infection that had developed and hardened onto the bone or onto the leg and and just kind of scrape it off if the, the snow or and the ice um, wasn't successful at that. You know, between the infection and the risk of having an infection that was so embedded in the bone that it would result potentially amputation, I think hours make a difference in terms of 
getting to the operating room and getting potential infection cleared out of bone so that it can heal. I don't think any of us could say for sure um, how much longer Greg could have lasted, but I think that the chances of the infection, you know, kind of leaving the bone and the muscle in that area in his leg that was injured and getting into the bloodstream and causing an overwhelming infection and sepsis in the body would have been quite high. And that, that you can't survive. He had had a good track record prior to this of, of coming back when he said he would, no problems, um, no injuries, no, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. So when Wednesday rolled around, um, now I started to get concerned and mad. Uh, I don't care if you're off looking at something that looks pretty cool. You're supposed to be home two days ago. So I called the sheriff's department um, about one o'clock on that Wednesday and asked them, I said, how long does someone need to be missing in order to file a missing person report? They said, well, you don't have to wait any time at all. I said, then I want to report my son missing. Uh, my name is Sergeant Matthew Hamilton uh, with the Fresno County Sheriff's Office Search and Rescue Team. So yeah, were, were you familiar with Greg's story um, before, before we sent that to you? Yeah, I was on that rescue. I can't remember exactly what I was doing at the time when I got the call, because we have, I mean, so many call outs. But I know it was, uh, we got the call later on, and um, usually it's from a family member that has an itinerary. You know, they get worried because they're not showing up or they're uh, overdue, which was the case with, uh, with Greg. But we didn't know at what point in his trip that something uh, bad happened. So it could have been early on in the trip, which, which turned out that's what happened. It was, it was earlier on. So he had been down for, for quite some time. As the days went on, I did consider the possibility of, of not surviving. But on the Thursday, I woke up to the helicopter flying above Mount Goddard and searching for where I was. And for the first time, I was like, well, now I um, can experience what it's like to kind of be lost at sea and um, them trying to find kind of a needle in the haystack. Uh, Park Service had their helicopters, we had ours, and uh, CHP H-40 was flying. And so there was a bunch of helicopter activity going, and you know I've been in the helicopter many times looking for people and looking down it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. All you see is a, is a sea of green. They flew within a couple hundred yards of where I was, and um, they hovered there for an agonizing, what I guess, 30 seconds to a minute, potentially. I'm throwing rocks up in the air, uh, waving my canary yellow bivy sack, trying to be noticed, and you know they're staring more or less just right past me, and they just couldn't see me. So after probably three or four in the afternoon, I was just like, the hell with this. Like, I am done trying to get noticed. And it was getting late enough in the day where I was thinking to myself, well, I'm just gonna improve my bed and make it as comfortable as possible and hopefully go back to sleep. Both my wife and I drove up to um, Florence Lake where the uh, command center was and the, saw the trailer set up. Greg's picture was on the side of the trailer. There was a big 
uh, map of the area blown up on the side of the trailer, and they had had it color-coded to indicate which parts of the area had been searched, uh, which parts of the area they were going to be searching the next day, because we got up there at 7 o'clock at night. Before nightfall, um, the fire helicopter from Yosemite came, and um, kind of all at once, the pilot looked out the left of the uh, of the helicopter and at me, and we kind of looked at each other for a couple seconds, you know, almost like long-lost love. The gentleman walked from behind the trailer, uh, had, had a radio in his hand, and um, he said, we found him. And I started to get all excited and relieved, and I thought, wait, he didn't say what condition he was in. And one of the other searchers that was standing next to me obviously had the same thought in mind because he said, well, what shape is he in? So the gentleman got back on the radio, uh, came back a couple minutes later, said he's alive, he's breathing, he's coherent, a little dehydrated, and he has a broken leg. Well, at that point, the alive part was <laughs> was what I was very much interested to hear after four years I still get a little emotional telling the story we thanked them I started to walk away turned back to them I said I'm sorry but thank you doesn't quite seem to be enough to say The three guys from the trail crew um, came over. We had a, a discussion, and they asked me my name, where I was, how long I had been out here. Um, basically, vital vital stats to get the an idea of my mental state. Well, after hearing the news up the mountain that that he was he was you know in in decent shape and being flown to the hospital, as fast as I could get down the hill, I we drove to the hospital and and. Uh, got into uh, Community Regional Medical Center and saw Greg and exchanged hugs and uh, he seemed to be in, in pretty decent spirits, but we had him back and relatively in one piece. When I heard the story later about how he got to where he was, I was just kind of blown away by it. He had to crawl for a, a pretty long distance. Um, and that just that just takes willpower. And it must have been extremely painful and scary too, because he didn't know if he was gonna end up losing his uh, part of his leg. Ended up having six total surgeries, complications after the first two months um, with a secondary infection and ended up being nine months from uh, when the accident happened to uh, when I was able to walk again. It's an impressive story that he was able to keep his wits about him, you know, treat himself, you know, do wound care every day and get himself into a position where he could be rescued. And I, I think you could pick any point in his story and say that here's where it could have been very different starting with him notifying folks about where he was going and, and when he was expected out. Because we had his, you know, an itinerary and when he was supposed to be out and kind of where he was going, 
uh, that got us pointed in the right direction. So without him providing that information to his dad, I don't think that he had a, a good chance of survival. And then it was just his mindset, not getting discouraged, being positive. Um, that's what's going to get you through in a situation like this. And that's what Greg did. He was going to, he's a survivor and he, he was going to make sure that he survived that situation. Hey, podcast fans, we will be taking a short break, but Out Alive will be back on Monday, July 1st, so make sure and tune in then. This episode of Out Alive was produced by me, Louisa Albanese, with story editing and sound design by Matt Coderre, who was also my co-host. Our associate producers are Zoe Gates, Amelia Arvison, and David Gleisner. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio Inc. Thank you to Greg Hine, Doug Hine, Dr. Luann Freer, and Sergeant Matthew Hamilton for sharing their stories and perspectives. A special thanks to Kings Canyon National Park and Yosemite and Fresno County Search and Rescue who saved Greg's life and so many others. If you enjoyed this episode of Ad Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review.